0: Matthew chapter 5 As your pastor it's important for you to know that I hold the Bible to be God's word fully that that this this book is God's actual word that it is inerrant that in other words that it is without error I believe it's accurate and relevant and, important, and that what it has to say about God, what it has to say about me, what it has to say about you, is 100% true. So that no matter what it says in all of its parts, in all of its intricacies, in all of its difficulties, that it is true. That it is God's Word. And I think that when you look at the life of Jesus, that we've seen... Up to this point in the book of Matthew, you also see that he held a high, high opinion of scripture as well. When he was challenged in the wilderness, you remember that when the devil came to him. In the first two temptations, Jesus looked at him and said, it is written. In other words, he quoted the Bible to the devil. When we looked even at the words from Jesus from last week. We would have come again to the same conclusion about him. He believed that the Bible was true. Down to the last dotting of the I. Down to the last crossing of the T. Jesus believed that the Bible was the word of God. And that heaven and earth wouldn't pass away until all of it was accomplished. So Jesus had a a rock solid confidence in the word of God. Of God, and as he continues through in his Sermon on the Mount and talking about God's word, he begins to expand upon what we saw last week. You remember verse twenty, where he says, "For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven." The Pharisees and scribes they focused, you remember, on an external and outward kind of. Religion, an x word and outward kind of a righteousness. In other words, they looked spiritual. They looked close to God. Everybody thought that they were godly, but their hearts were incredibly wicked. They were hypocrites. They acted one way on the outside, but their hearts didn't match their outward actions. And I think that all of us here, self included, can be in danger of this as well. That we can be avid churchgoers. We can say all the right things. We can have all the crosses. We can look the right way. We can give money to the church. Yet we can have hearts that are just as wicked as the Pharisees and scribes. And this is important for disciples of Jesus. Because the good works of the disciples wouldn't be for some kind of outward show. They weren't meant to be some sort of spectacle. They were going to be the result of an inward change. The good works that the disciples would do would come as a result of inward change. Jesus came to change hearts, to change our motivation, to change our thinking, that our focus shouldn't be, again, on some sort of display of the external righteousness, but actual, true righteousness of the heart. And so, as Jesus begins showing us the proper interpretation of the law of Moses, it's like He's, he's taking a scalpel to our hearts, The master teacher that he is, he's he's cutting off what shouldn't be there. And then showing what the heart of a disciple looks like. So up until verse 48, we're going to be in verse 21 to 26 this morning. But up until verse 48 in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is going to give six contrasts that start out something like this. You have heard it said, and then a law, but I say to you, and then he goes on, To explain. So Jesus is going to not do away with the law here. He's not saying you have heard it said. And by that you should disregard it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you have heard it said. You have been taught this understanding. About this certain law. But your interpretation is wrong. It's faulty. And so I say to you. This is the proper interpretation of the law. So Jesus is teaching them that the Old Testament is right, but how they were taught to view the Old Testament is wrong. Look at verses 21 to 26 with me. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering a gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way. Or he may hand you off to the judge. And the judge may hand you over to the officer. And you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth. You will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Let's pray one more time before we begin. Father, we pray that you'll open your word to us now. By your spirit, speak these words into our life. Cause us to change. We want to change as a result of your word and I pray that you'll do that in our worship this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Some of you may or may not remember the name Kevin Brown. Can anybody remember the name Kevin Brown and why it's significant? No. Kevin Brown was a pitcher for several baseball teams and his career touched The 1980s, the 90s, and the 2000s. And he put together a good career. He had over 200 wins. He was a six-time All-Star. They won the World Series. He won the World Series with the Marlins in 1997. He had a good career. He really did. But something interesting happened at the end of Kevin Brown's career. In a game against the Baltimore Orioles in 2004, he came back into his clubhouse And in complete frustration, he punched the wall with his non-pitching hand. A pitcher in baseball. A pitcher, no matter what hand he is using, should not be using his hands to punch walls, should they? Needless to say, he broke his hand up to his wrist, and he couldn't play for several weeks. But what would motivate a six-time all-star, Somebody who had won hundreds of baseball games, pitching... What would motivate him to slam one of his hands into a wall? We've all felt it though. We've all felt what Kevin Brown has felt. It could have been when our spouse brings up the same nagging subject that they bring up. It could have been when the child spilled the milk at the restaurant and caused some kind of big scene. Or it could have been when our parents did something to embarrass us as teenagers. But regardless of what caused it, or regardless of how it flared up inside of us, we have all felt anger. We have all seen anger in other people. Even in children who are only one or two years old. I can say that because I'm living it. Well, one thing that is commonly mentioned regarding parenting in particular is that you don't need to train a child to sin, do you? You don't need to take a child and say... This is how you steal. This is how to be rude. This is how to get mad at mommy. You don't need to teach a child to sin. And specifically in regards to anger, you don't need to train your child to get angry when you tell them to put away their toy because it's nap time. It's automatic. My first remembrance of being angry was when I was probably about four or five years old. You Remember those Chuck Taylor converses with the canvas up the side? I remember having a pair of those, and I could not get them on. I tried slamming my foot into it as hard as I can. I tried pulling them as hard as I could, and I could not get these shoes on. And as I continued through my life, I mean, that's my first remembrance of being angry. But as I look through the timeline of my life, I can, as I'm sure you can, you can see all of these times where you have been angry. Angry at your parents, angry at your siblings, angry at your friends, angry at your spouse, angry at God. Sometimes we get angry at people we've never even met before. The president does something that we think is crazy and we get angry at him. Or a senator, politician of some sort, they say something. Or maybe even another pastor or another minister or some kind of ministry somewhere. They do something and it makes us angry at them. Tom Brady loses two Super Bowls in a row to the Giants. And I'm angry with him. Sometimes we get angry at inanimate things, right? Like the weather. You walk out of your house for six months out of the year and your face hurts. And you're angry at the weather. Or you get a flat tire and you start kicking your car. You get angry. But in our passage today, Jesus is going to teach us that as people of the kingdom... We are not to be sinfully angry, particularly with others. As people of the kingdom, we're to put to death the anger that resides inside of our heart. And he's going to show us this first by giving us a general, all-encompassing statement about anger. Look again at verse 21. You have heard that it was said long, of people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to, Judgment. So again, Jesus begins with, you have heard it said. In other words, these people that Jesus was talking to, they weren't ignorant of the teachings of the law. They had heard them. They had been instructed in them, likely from the time that they were the kids. But again, the problem was their interpretation that they were given. This is what Jesus is seeking to correct. The interpretation that they had been taught caused them to think... As Matthew Henry says, that the divine law prohibited only the sinful act, not the sinful thought. What an important thing to understand when you're considering God's word. That God not only prohibits the actual acts of sin, but he prohibits the sin of the heart and the mind. And this is what he's driving at. Jesus doesn't just want us to stop doing sinful things. He wants the sinful thoughts to be eradicated from our minds. On the surface, the law says that you, if you murder somebody, you're going to be subject to judgment. And hopefully all of us agree on that. If somebody murders somebody, they should be subject to judgment. They should be judged for it. But Jesus didn't come to just save non-murderers. He wasn't coming to just save people who had not murdered people with their hands. He came to save people who had murdered people with their hearts. So Jesus is showing these guys that their interpretation was flawed. He was proving to them that they had this external focus of the law and that they had stripped the law of what it actually was supposed to mean. And Jesus is seeking to restore these laws with the original punch that was intended. So anger in your heart towards somebody is murdering them in your heart. Remember back with me to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 4. Adam and Eve, they had two sons to, to begin, right? They had Cain and then they had Abel. And, and Abel was a shepherd and Cain, he grew stuff from the ground, he was a gardener. And over time, the text tells us that Cain brought a sacrifice of his harvest from his garden to the Lord. And Abel brought a sacrifice of, from his flock to the Lord. And in that passage, it says that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he didn't have regard for Cain and his offering. In other words, God did not accept the offering of Cain. And what was Cain's response? Genesis chapter 4 verse 5 says that Cain was angry. And what did Cain's anger lead him to do? It caused him to kill his brother Abel. Are you an angry person? If I were to sit with your spouse and ask them, is your wife an angry person? Is your husband an angry person? What would they say? We have all of these ways that we talk about anger many times without even addressing it as an actual problem or an actual sin that needs to be dealt with. In fact, Jerry Bridges wrote a book called Respectable Sins. One of which uh, that he writes about as a respectable sin is anger. In other words, we don't often think that anger is that big of a deal and we prove it by the way we talk about it. We say things like, oh, I I was just frustrated. Or, oh, I I just lost my temper, lost lost our temper like we lost our dog. Like we, we couldn't control the fact that our temper just ran away from us. Or this one. That person just pushes my buttons, which really puts the, the problem on somebody else. It wasn't my anger that was the problem. It was their problem and, and their struggle and their sin for pushing my buttons. When we go to apologize for something we did as a result of our anger, we hardly, ever, we hardly ever apologize for the anger itself. I've never gone up to somebody and said, I'm sorry, I murdered you in my heart. But that's what I did. Sometimes we refer to anger like something that we have to manage Ever heard of anger management? But what Jesus is driving at is that he's not looking for anger management. He's looking for anger eradication. This again is one of those sins that we don't have to teach our children. From the time that the teenage girl looks at her parents and says, I hate you. She has begun the lifelong killing spree of people in her heart. One article said this. Most people believe my anger is normal and justifiable. It's a normal and justifiable response to the way that I was treated. They argue that they have the right to be angry. But the Bible says otherwise. People must recognize anger as sin. Find God's help and replace anger with godly emotions. Disciples of Jesus recognize their sin, their anger as sin, as murder of the heart. They deal with it properly and they seek God's help for change. Look at verse 22. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, and answerable to the Sanhedrin, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So when he began verse 21, again, he said, you have heard that it was said. And here in verse 22 he says, but I say to you, and what would have been incredibly shocking to this people who would be listening to Jesus Is the way that in which he spoke. He spoke with incredible authority. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew says this. When Jesus had finished saying these things. The crowd was amazed at his teaching. Because he taught as one who had authority. And not as one of their teachers of the law. You have heard these laws spoken. Jesus said. But let me tell you what we meant. When we had them written down for you. First. If you're angry with somebody. You are subject to judgment. And so Jesus gives a couple kind of everyday illustrations of what he's talking about. First he says not to call your brother or refer to your brother as Raka, which basically is like calling somebody a loser. It's like, it's an insult. For those of you who are Charlie Brown fans, it's like when Lucy calls Charlie Brown a blockhead. So don't refer to your brother as a blockhead. Don't refer to your brother as a numbskull or a loser. And if you do... You're answerable to the Sanhedrin. You're answerable to the the council, which was the big religious group um, in that area where the Pharisees and the Sadducees made up that group. And so he's saying, if you refer to your brother as a loser or a numbskull, you are answerable to that council. But that's not it. Look again in the end of verse 22. But anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. From Rhode Island which is closely linked to Massachusetts in a lot of ways, culture-wise, and a lot of the same stuff goes on, obviously. And one thing we're not known for as a good thing is our driving. It's a little better up here, but it's pretty bad up here, too. But in particular, in those couple states, but how many times have I looked out of my car and said, you're an idiot, you're a fool? The road rage that just burns up inside of us to call somebody a fool. But there are so many other illustrations that we could pull out, that we could think of times where we called somebody a fool. And Jesus says, if you call anyone a fool, you will be in danger of the fire of hell. Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Words can hurt you. Words can send you to hell. Our anger-born words require God's judgment. Look at verse 23. Jesus continues. He's illustrating again this this point. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. So here Jesus is likely teaching the Sermon on the Mount in Galilee to these people who have come from all over the place. So Galilee, where Jesus was at this moment, was about 80 miles from Jerusalem. And you realize that if if you go and you're, you're offering your temple sacrifice, Jesus says, you're 80 miles away from where we are right now, and you go and you're offering your sacrifice, but you remember that your brother has something against you, that you've done something against your brother, that you should leave the altar, you should travel back 80 miles, be reconciled with your brother, and then go and make your sacrifice. This is an important principle. If, something, if somebody has something against you, if you've offended somebody, you need to make it right. I can't tell you how many times before a worship service, I've gone to my wife and said, I'm sorry, I was wrong. God brings it to mind and you reconcile that relationship before you come in to worship the Lord. Is there anybody that you've wronged or offended? You Go to them, ask forgiveness, be reconciled to them before you come here and offer your sacrifice to the Lord. Jesus is covering all of his bases here. Any thought or feeling or action or... Born from anger toward a brother is an act of murder. But not only should you not be angry and deal well with somebody who you consider a brother. In other words, it could be an actual sibling. It could be a Christian brother. It could be acquaintance. But somebody that you're in good connection with. You should not only not be angry and deal well with that person. But you should also not be angry with an adversary. Verse 25. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him. Or the way. On the way. Or he may hand you over to the judge. And the judge may hand you over to the officer. And you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth. You will not get out. Until you have paid the last penny. So first. If you have a problem with your brother. Sort it out. Be reconciled with your brother. Brother, Second. Settle matters quickly with someone who is holding something against you. In other words, don't drag things out with someone. Jesus gives an illusion here to being sued. If somebody is trying to sue you to try to settle something, you need to go to them and try to settle it before it even gets to the court system. Otherwise, you could end up being thrown in prison and lose all that you have. So have short accounts with people. If someone has an issue with you, deal with it quickly, whether they're your brother or whether they're your adversary. If you have an issue with somebody, deal with it quickly. Don't let things go on. Don't let things fester. If I can borrow a phrase from poker, do you see that Jesus has upped the ante? The initial law that Jesus brought up was the law, thou shalt not murder. But Jesus isn't going to be satisfied with simply allowing non-murderers into heaven. The Pharisees and the scribes all thought they were good because they obeyed those external commands of these laws. But they didn't acknowledge them as having to do with their hearts. But that's what's difficult about internal sins of the heart as opposed to external actions. If you were to murder somebody, you'd likely get caught, convicted, and put in prison. But when you're angry towards somebody, nobody has to know. And that's why being angry is so dangerous. If you lost your temper in a, a group of people, we could sit and we could talk through it biblically and say, hey man, you really shouldn't have done that. But when the sin remains behind the door of a closed heart, you're able to harbor your anger and silently kill people with it. The very place that we're supposed to love God from, our hearts, is the very place where we kill each other in anger. How can we love God the way that we ought to love God with the carnage of family members and church members and co-workers lay dead? We strike people down in our hearts consistently. Our anger and our hate and our malice towards people, whether it burst out in a temper or not, is murder. And we deserve to die because of it. We deserve the judgment that Jesus talks about. We deserve hell. We deserve to lose our lives because of the anger that burns in our hearts. But this is the point of the gospel. We don't get the death penalty that we deserve as a result of having murderous hearts because Jesus took the death penalty for us. If you're with us today and you haven't trusted in Christ and you recognize that this sin of anger alone is condemning you, then I ask you to consider Christ who never once got sinfully angry, who never once, got, who never once sinned in any way at all, who was offered up as a sacrifice for sin. If the Spirit of God is opening your eyes to the fact that you have a heart of anger that you deserve death for and that you realize that all of this is an impossible standard to live up to then trust in Jesus who has lived up to that standard for us. To those of you who are Christians a low view of anger and a high tolerance of having it in our hearts will keep us from living well as disciples of Jesus. Let it go. Get it dealt with. Ask God for the grace to forgive a brother or an adversary. Ask God to eradicate the anger in your heart so that you can live freely with a free conscience as one of his disciples. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you'll do a work in our hearts and cut out the anger. So given to it. There's so many ways where it flares up as a result of our sin nature. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to be mindful. Lord, help us to seek reconciliation with our brothers and sisters in Christ that we have hurt, that we have offended. Lord, I pray that you'll also help us to deal with matters quickly with those who are maybe our adversary, our opposition, who have something against us. Help us to deal with those things quickly. Father, I pray that you'll change hearts this morning. Make us mindful of the fact that you lived up to the standard of perfection required. That you were the perfect sacrifice on our behalf because we're sinners. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.